0: Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website, nbbctx.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Grab your Bibles if you would and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We're going to continue our series called uh, Who's Your One? Who's Your One? So make your way to Acts chapter 17. Uh, we'll be there briefly and they'll be turning somewhere else in a moment. But um, I don't know if you're familiar with this. There was a docudrama a few years ago released uh, called The Men Who Made America. I don't know if anybody watched that Uh, Men Who Made America. So it's basically kind of a docudrama that highlighted a number of individuals who through their entrepreneurial endeavors and uh, creativity uh, really reshaped American culture in many ways, but mainly financially. So it told the story of J.P. Morgan, um, uh, Henry Ford, um, and, and different uh, individuals through history uh, that just were creative and kind of out-of-the-box thinkers that that really shaped and built uh, America. Well, when you get in the book of Acts, here's, here's really what you're discovering. You're looking at uh, the men and women who built the church. You're seeing the story of how God used individuals um, in the first century to just take the mission of Jesus uh, to the world, to lay a foundation that we're continuing to build and expand um, today. And uh, I want to look this morning at a couple of those those characters, but in Acts chapter 17, I want you to see a phrase. We're going to talk about Paul and Silas this morning and and the one that they encountered uh, that we know as the Philippian jailer. But I want to see one phrase that is said about Uh, Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 17 that really uh, resonates with my heart and and really lays the foundation of why we're doing what we're doing in this uh, series. But look at Acts chapter 17 verse 6, the latter part of that. I want you to hear what an unbeliever says about Paul and Silas. It says, and these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I want you to think about that phrase. These men, this is a guy who's not a follower of Jesus but he knows the reputation of Paul and Silas. They're there in Thessalonica, and they're just proclaiming Jesus and, and moving through the city. And this is what it said. These men who are turning the world upside down have come here as well. I mean, what, what kind of a reputation is that? Like, like to be known as men and women who would turn the world upside down for the gospel of Jesus. Men and women who people know as men, they, when they come into town, things are never the same again. And here's the thing, church family, this is what my prayer is for my life and, and my prayer for us collectively as New Beginnings Baptist Church, that we would be a men and women, that it would be said of us that this church, these people, they are turning the world upside down. I mean, they take the mission of God seriously and they, they are on fire for Christ. They they believe in the Great Commission and, man, they want to see their city, their state, their nation, the world turned upside down for the sake of the kingdom of God. Would anybody be interested in being a part of something like that. Say amen. Yeah, four of you, great, awesome. The rest of us, all right, uh, we'll just kind of sit back. But listen, this is the reality. This is what my desire uh, is for us as a church. You know what's fascinating about this? These men are turning the world upside down not because they had lots of resources, big budgets, uh, political platform, or some other means that we would attribute to this advancement of the gospel. No, no, they they simply had this, a message that they believed and the power of the Holy Spirit. They had the message of the gospel. They, they, They believed, they truly understood that Jesus is the hope of the world and filled with the Holy Spirit. With that message and that power, they turned the world upside down. And that's good news for you and me, because they're just ordinary people like us who have an extraordinary message with the power of the Holy Spirit. And listen, that that is the, the power that we walk in. That's the message that we proclaim. The same gospel, the same Holy Spirit. And what I want us to look at this morning as we jump into this, I want you to see why it is... We are taking this Who's Your One challenge. I I want us to really wrap our minds around this morning. This is why we want to identify individuals that are near us, that are far from Jesus, and be committed to simply sharing the good news of Jesus with them so that their lives could be radically transformed. I want you to imagine with me. Think about just in, in, in the life of New Beginnings. There's about 2,200 people that would say that they attend New Beginnings Baptist Church and are, are, are fairly regular participants between our two campuses. Imagine if 2,200 people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ would identify one person in their life that are far from Jesus and say, I'm going to be committed to leading that person to Christ or proclaiming the good news to Jesus to them. And then after we reach the one, we're going to go for another one and another one and another one and another one. Imagine 2,200 disciples of Jesus who got serious about the message, understood the power of the Spirit, began to walk with authority in His name, listen, we would turn this city upside down. Amen? And that's the heartbeat. That's why we're challenging you. That's why on this wall back here, you see this, this one, these little cards that make up this word one here are individuals who are already saying, I'm identifying someone in my life that I'm going to commit to praying for and then sharing with the good news of Jesus so that they would, might uh, experience salvation in Him. I believe if we take this challenge seriously, we could see our city turned upside down, our state turned upside down, our nation turned upside down, if we would get serious about proclaiming this message. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to look at a story in the life of Paul and Silas, two ordinary men who are turning the world upside down, and just look at their life. I want us to, to look at their life while they're in, in the season of, 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 of life where they find themselves in prison. They're confronted and, and enter into a relationship with this guy that we know of as the Philippian jailer, this one that they had uh, entered into the story with, that they practically exemplify for us what it looks like to turn the world upside down one individual at a time. So if you've got your Bibles, Acts chapter uh, 16 is where we're going to be, so turn back a page to chapter 16. Uh, Paul and Silas were in a little city called Philippi. They're, they're moving through there, and the story of, of, of Acts chapter 16 is, is Paul and Silas uh, reaching one after another. Lydia, this, this, there's, a, there's a woman who was a, a part of uh, this great commercial trade, and she was very influential, in, and, and, and we know her name is Lydia. And then there's another story of a lady who is uh, not given her name. She's a woman who's filled with a demon. And uh, Paul and Silas deliver her from the demonic influences. She experiences salvation in Christ. And I love that story. Let me just kind of tell you, even though I don't have time, I love the story of the woman who was demon-possessed because uh, Paul is going through the city, and this woman who was demon-possessed, and she was a, a slave girl, and, uh, and uh, the, the owners were using her supernatural demonic influence power for personal gain. Well, she's following Paul and Silas around because demons understand who Paul is. I mean, they they recognize a guy who is marked by God, who's proclaiming the mission of God. And so Paul and Silas are going to their city. This woman, it says, is following them around saying, hey, these men are preaching Jesus of Nazareth, that he died and he resurrected. And she's trying to interrupt the ministry. And I love it because as they're making their way through, it says that Paul was annoyed with her. And so he turned around and he cast the demon out. Like, could you imagine? He said, I'm just tired of this. Just demon be gone, right? Like out of frustration. I can just tell you a reason that resonates with me as a pastor is because there's some of you. (laughs) I'm not going to say you're annoying, but you might be. And I would just love, especially if some of y'all are filled with the demonic presence of needing to use the bathroom while I'm preaching. And that demon needs to go. All right, I'll be honest with you. And uh, there are some Sundays that I'm just like, I'm going to cast that demon out in front of everyone. One of these days, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to be like, demon, be gone. But I'm not going to do that today, all right? So Paul's annoyed at this woman, cast the demon out. Her life is transformed. Because of this, they are arrested, beaten, thrown in prison. Let's pick up in the story here in verse 21. Um, The crowd joined in attacking them. And magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they afflicted them with many blows upon them, so they stripped down, they're beaten severely. I'm mean, not talking about a few blows, many blows. It says they threw them in prison, ordering the jailkeeper to keep them safely. Now don't miss number, verse number 24, because this is important, understanding the situation they find themselves in. And having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, so this jailer gets this, this message. You take these guys that have been severely beaten with many blows, stripped of their clothes, beaten with rods, now they're bloodied and they're bruised and they're beaten and they're, they're told, by the, 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 they tell this jailer, you put them under lock and key and you do not let them get loose. He received that order and then it says, and then he put them in the inner prison on his own willfully and put them in stocks. Here's what, uh, why that's important. Put them in stocks is the idea of He put them in the inner prison. They would be placed with the most hardened, dangerous criminals. In the, in the most secure place of the prison, then putting them in stocks means that their legs would have been distorted and put out of position so that he could inflict consistent pain in them so that as they're there in the inner prison, they could not only, could they not get out because they were chained in, locked in in the inner part, but now that there was an addition to the beating, now their body would enter into all kinds of cramps and discomfort that would lead to severe and ongoing constant pain. And here's the first truth I want us to see If we're going to be men and women who turn the world upside down with the gospel, we need to understand this truth. We need to remember that the Great Commission is costly. We need to remember that the Great Commission is costly. I mean, Paul and Silas are are, are simply being obedient to the command to go and make disciples. But because the gospel is offensive, they find themselves now not just beaten, not just whipped in the prison, not just in the prison, but in the inner prison, not just there, but now in stocks, in severe pain and turmoil, simply because they were obeying God's command to go and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because the Great Commission is costly. There is a price of pursuing Jesus. This is important that we understand this. If you read the book of Acts, you'll know that this is commonplace, Meanwhile, these disciples were turning the world on its head, and they saw the mission of God as most important, they were met with severe consequences because of their obedience to Jesus. Now, look, look what he, uh, Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Paul is going to describe the severity and the cost that the Great Commission um, had, had put on his life. Listen to this. It says, five times I received the hands, uh, at the hands of the Jews forty lashes less one, If that sounds familiar, that's the same beating Jesus received right before he was crucified. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from my own people and dangers from Gentiles and dangers in the city and dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst without food and cold and exposure. Now verse 28 resonates with me as a pastor. Verse 28, and apart from all these things, There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's life wasn't easy. But Paul understood that the Great Commission was costly. He understood that the gospel is offensive and because men love darkness more than the light, that when he was faithful to proclaim the gospel, there would be men and women who stood in opposition to the mission of God and therefore it was going to be costly Turning the world upside down is not an easy task. And for some of you right now in the room, I kind of feel what you're feeling, all right? Because some of you are like, a moment ago, Pastor, you were talking about a great message, a full of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to turn the world upside down. And now you're talking about beaten and whipped and cost and price, and I don't know that I'm in with that. Which is why I'm telling you this. Because what I don't want is to rally the troops and say let's band together and let's run after the kingdom of God and let's advance and turn the city upside down and then pull a bait and switch and not tell you that to say yes to that call is going to be costly. I mean, this is the mission of God. Like, I want to be totally upfront with you. The mission of God is not an easy thing to run after. And there's a price to be paid. It's one of the reasons in a couple of weeks we're going to do a series I cannot wait for. I think this could be a series that does one of two things and maybe both. We're going to do a series in uh, the fall called A Call to Die. And we're going to talk about the, the radical call to abandon everything to follow Jesus we're going to get back to the original invitation that Jesus gave when he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what we're going to discover is that this is not an easy call. This is a hard invitation. And discipleship is costly and the Great Commission has a price to it. And here's one of two things that are going to happen. One, I believe this is going to be a, a, a church-shaping series that we're going to enter into. Now, we're going to see the the, the call of Jesus more clearly, and there are some of you that God is just going to burn a fire in your heart and soul that will never go out, and God's going to use you in ways you never imagined, and there are going to be some of you that are going to jump ship. We're going to thin the herd probably in the fall. Because if we're going to chase and be a church that's serious about the mission of God, that says we want to see our city transformed and and the world impacted with the gospel of Christ, listen, that there's going to be a distinction between the fans of Jesus and followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus understand the cost and they recognize that the great commission is costly. And this is exactly what Jesus said. There was never fine print with Jesus's invitation, by the way. You know what I'm talking about when I say Fine print. You know, like the commercial, like like if you got you know heartburn or indigestion, the commercial comes on, and there's this magic pill that's going to allow you to eat all of the, the the chili dogs in the world with onions and peppers on them, and you're like watching it, and you go, I got indigestion and heartburn, and I'd love to eat a chili dog that would give me a heart attack in a few years. I would love that, but I can't, and my, my stomach burns too hard, and you watch the commercial, and all of a sudden, they even show you the little figure of the person whose stomach was red and on fire, and, and now it's blue, and it's nice, and, and then they go to the concession stand, and now they got the hot dog, and you're like, I want the pill, because I got the problem, and then at the very end, right before you're ready to hit send on the phone call, it gives you this speed reader, who's going to have this little uh, four font on the screen that then tells you all of the side effects, that if you take this medicine, what could Intentionally happen to you y'all know what I'm talking about and it gives you all of these scenarios that if you take this this is possible this is possible this is possible this is possible at the end you're like I'm better with heartburn no thanks right <laughs> there's no fine print with Jesus Jesus has come follow me and if you follow me here's what you need to know no no ma- no, no no student is greater than the teacher no servant is greater than the master if they persecuted me they're going to persecute you if I suffered, you're going to suffer. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be whipped. The enemies in your life are going to be people in your own household. He was very clear about the price and the, and the, and the, and the cost involved with the Great Commission. Even in, in John chapter 16, Jesus says this in verse 1. He says, I have said all these things to you. Now, what are they, all these, th- these things? If you go back and read chapter 15, he's telling them that the, the following him is going to have a price. There's gonna be a cost involved. He says, I'm telling you all of these things to keep you from falling away. In other words, if I just tell you, come follow me and everything's gonna be great, the moment suffering comes, you're gonna fall away because you're gonna say, I didn't sign up for this. So I'm telling you up front, this is the cost, so that when you get out there and the price begins to increase, you're not gonna quit. Then he goes on to say, listen to this in verse number two. They will put you out of the synagogue. They will kick you out of the church. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering God a service. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you. Listen to this. That when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. What is Jesus saying there? The great commission is costly. There is a price to pay. Turning the world upside down is not going to be easy. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you up front, no no builder goes into a project without first putting a budget together to determine whether or not they understand the cost involved. And I'm telling you, there's a cost in following me. And I'm telling you this so that you don't turn away when it happens. Now, church, this is not easy. This is This is difficult. And there are some of you, even right now in this room, and this is what my, not my fear is, my fear for you, is that you will miss out. You will miss out on all the great things that God could do in and through your life if you would just get beyond yourself and understand that pursuing Jesus is worth giving up everything that you have. This is why Jesus says, listen, there's, there's, a, there's a choice you have to make. If you want to hang on to your life, You want to hold on and preserve your safety and your comfort and hold on to your life? Guess what you're going to do? You're going to lose your life in the end. But to follow me means you've got to relinquish your life. You've got to die to yourself. And that way you can find a life that is truly life that is found in me. But there is a cost involved, and it's full surrender to what I've come to do. And when you surrender all to me and what I've come to do, I can do through you. But there's going to be a cost. And I love this. Paul knows this. Silas knows this. They're walking in this. And look at verse 25. This blows my ever-loving mind. Look what he says in verse 25. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now think about this. They're in prison, beaten, whipped, in the inner prison with the worst criminals, in stocks, body distorted, body cramps, severe pain. And what are they doing? They're singing And they're worshiping, and they're praying, and out loud. And it says that the other prisoners, they took notice. They were listening to them. You know what that says to me? Listen to me. Listen, our greatest sermons are proclaimed during some of the greatest seasons of suffering in our life. Our greatest sermons are proclaimed during some of the deepest and most painful moments and suffering in our life. So here's here's what the world needs. The world does not need an American version of Christianity that says to you or says to to the world, hey, if you'll just come follow Jesus, God will give you everything you want and your life will be happy and everything is going to be easy, just come follow Jesus. No, 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 because that's not the invitation of Jesus. The invitation of Jesus is come and suffer with me, for me have your life radically transformed by my gospel and you go proclaim my message to the world and it's going to be costly in your life, that that's the invitation of Jesus. And so can I tell you one of the reasons we're failing in the area of the Great Commission is because we're giving an Americanized version of the gospel and it's not the real gospel. What the world needs to see in the lives of believers is that we found something in Christ more valuable more valuable than comfort. You see, Paul and Silas are in prison, and they're, they're, they're beaten and they're whipped, yet they're singing and they're worshiping. Why are the crowd, why is the, the prison crowd that's there uh, seeing this and standing in awe? It's because they're seeing men who are in severe circumstances suffering for Jesus, and yet they have not stopped worshiping Jesus. What many of us do is this. We we give an American, we sorry, we give a Christian version of the American dream to the world, and we think the world is gonna be impressed. And here's what I mean by that. Just just track with me for a minute. So what we do is, is that we we hold the same value system as the world, which means we want comfort, ease, convenience, all of the great blessings that we would call the American dream in our life. And then we Christianize it by obtaining that and then just saying thank you to Jesus for it. And what the world sees when that is what we run after, what the world sees is their same value system just with Jesus tagged on to the end. They don't see the beauty of Christ or the glory of God. They just see their own value system. And so if they enter into the faith because of that, they're not really entering into it because they want Jesus. They're entering into it because they want the same things that we want, which is the worldly things, rather than to savor Christ. But when we become men and women who value Christ above all things, in the midst of suffering and pain and hardship and real tears, here's what's going to happen in the midst of the hardships of life, we are going to say, thank you, Jesus, that I have you. And we're going to worship and we're going to sing and we're going to pray. And through the pain and through the tears and through the sorrow, the the world is going to look at our life and say there's something about them that's different. There is a joy that's in them that transcends the pain. There's a value that they place on Jesus that goes far beyond the comforts of this world. There's something about their life that I want. Because even when the bottom drops out, they don't stop worshiping. You see, when that becomes the way that we worship, it's through tears. And it's not, listen, this is not a a Rocky four, no pain type of praise. Some of y'all know that reference. The first service, I was so disappointed. They didn't know the reference. This is not Paul and Silas going, I don't feel it, I don't feel it, I don't feel it. Now I think they're in there and they're feeling it and I believe maybe there's tears and there's, there's open wounds and they're, they're grieving and they're going through all the emotions that we would go through and yet because they value Jesus above all things, guess what they do? They worship in the pain and the suffering. There's a joy. I want you to see What happens next in the story? And verse 26, it says, And suddenly, I love this, in the middle of a worship service, an earthquake breaks out. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the uh, the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, the reason he's doing this is because in this particular day, if you were a jailer, and it didn't matter the reasons, if your prisoner escaped, then you were going to be tortured and put to death. And it was going to be a very dishonorable death, painful death. So to avoid the disgrace to his family and to himself, he says, I'm going to alleviate that, and I'm just going to put an end to it. On my own. This is a way for him to say, in that culture, I was going to die with honor. But Paul, verse 28, cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Here's the second big truth that I want us to see this morning. Listen, if we are going to see the world turned upside down, not only must we remember that the Great Commission is costly, listen, we must be more committed to our calling... Than our comfort. We must be more committed to our calling than our comfort. I want you to think about the story. They're beaten, they're whipped, they're in prison, they're in stocks, and yet they're worshiping in the middle of the worship service. So think about, man, if if you were in prison, and somehow you had this faith where you're like, man, I'm going to sing, and I'm going to worship, and I'm going to make much of, of God in this moment. All of a sudden, the earth begins to quake, and you look down, the chains are gone, the stocks have fallen off, the prison doors are open. Like, I don't know about you, hello, I'm gone, right? I'm out of there. I'm taking a sign from the Lord, He intervened with a miracle, he, he, he rewarded my worship, and I'm getting out of here. This would be literally my get-out-of-jail-free card, right? Like, I'm out. It's confession time. How many of you, that would be your response as well? Raise your hand. The rest of you are liars, all right? You are liars. <laughs> like, I'm out. But not Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas, it says they remained. They stayed in prison. They, think about this. You would think they would bail in the moment. Their their, their discomfort is going to be alleviated. Now the Lord has intervened and miraculously has set them free. But here is the difference between Paul and Silas and many of us in the room. Paul understood that God had a purpose for his pain and therefore was willing to remain in a place of discomfort because he knew God had a greater purpose for him being there. Paul understood in this moment that God had placed him in prison For a reason, and he was more focused on experiencing, fulfilling God's purpose than he was his own release. See, many of us, we value our comfort more than our calling. And therefore, the moment discomfort enters into our life, the moment the gospel brings us into uncomfortable situations and brings pain into our life, or maybe it's becoming costly because we are naturally inclined toward comfort, what do we do? We bail on the calling because we want to pursue comfort. We all want comfort, right? Anybody here not want to be comfortable? Like this, like in the seats, right? In the room right now, one of the first things said to me about this building when we entered into it was like, man, the seats are comfortable, which means you can get better naps during my sermon. That's what that means, I know. I somebody asked for it, can you put a recliner on it and a cup holder? And I'm like, yeah, where's the popcorn, right? That's what we want. I was laughing about that this morning, about, about seating. Um, y'all know Pastor Connor left our staff a couple of weeks ago, and, and I remembered something last week. I remembered that Pastor Connor had a new chair in his office. And I had been complaining for years about my chair. My chair is about nine years old and it is wore out. It was never really that nice to begin with. And I I realized all these years I've been laboring for Jesus in severe pain and discomfort and I was deserving. So you know what I did? I did like any rational person would do. I stole Connor's chair because he's not there anymore, right? So I switched chairs and then I sat in his chair, which I'd never done before. And I realized. This guy called me. In, he said, you're my best friend. And he sat in this for years knowing what I was sitting in. <laughs> so I called, I called Amy, and this is no lie. Amy, come here. I want you to sit in my chair for a second. I want you to sit in Connor's chair. I'm telling you, I think a masseuse came with a chair. I promise you. Like, guess what? I put the old chair. I don't know who we're hiring, but they're going to get that chair. I'm in Connor's chair. Because it, it is, I'm not going to get any work done now. Because it is so comfortable. And this morning we were laughing. We have a, a prayer meeting, um, um, a ministry team prayer meeting uh, uh, on Sunday mornings. And, and so I, was, I had the new chair in there, and I'm sitting there bragging about my new chair. I'm like, can you believe Connor would do this to me for years? And uh, we were laughing about it. And then one of our, our team members, I'm not going to say his name, but it rhymes with Wayne Smith. And um, he's like, do you think the missionaries in Africa are having this conversation right now? And I was like, there's always that guy. There's always that guy. <laughs> Now, we, we all want comfort, right? We all want comfort. We all will lean toward that. But listen, the mission of God is going to lead us into places at times that are it's highly uncomfortable. And in those moments, we have got to be more committed to the calling than to comfort. Which means for some of you, with your one, you know, and this is the fear that you have, God's put a burden in your heart for a friend that's far from Jesus, doesn't know Christ altogether, and you know, I've got to have that conversation, and it's going to be an uncomfortable conversation, and that conversation might actually cost you the friendship. But because of your comfort, you've avoided the conversation. Because some of you, listen, you love your friendship more than you love your friend. Because you love your friendship more than you love your friend, you're not willing to lose your f- friendship in order to save your friend. And so we avoid, and we sidestep some of you. some of you, you, you need to say no to the vacation so that you can say yes to the mission trip. But that's an uncomfortable conversation. That's an uncomfortable choice to make, right? for us to willfully say, I'm going to go without so that the kingdom of God can be advanced. But God leads us into situations, and rather than in those difficult moments, in those uncomfortable seasons of our life, rather than begging God to relieve us of the discomfort, we need to ask God, God, fulfill through me whatever it is you want me to accomplish in the season that I'm in. We need to choose discomfort at times over comfort. And for many of us, God leads us into discomfort. We must rather than escape it, choose to stay there so that God's greater purpose might be fulfilled in our life. Listen, we are not going to turn the world upside down and see a city transformed with the gospel of Christ unless we understand that our calling has to become greater than any comfort this world has to offer us. Listen, the gospel is costly. It's going to lead us into moments that are highly uncomfortable. Which kind of leads to the rest of the story. What happens next is fascinating. Verse 30. It says, Then he brought them out. So the jailer brings them out, and this is his statement. So the prison doors are open. These beaten, bloodied, bruised men who were singing and worshiping rather than cursing God or complaining about their situation are in the prison. They didn't leave. They didn't bail. So this man asked this question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And church family, this is the thing that I want you to get. If you don't hear anything else today, here is what I want you to hear today. This is the question that the world is asking. This is the fundamental question that is being cried out of every human heart, whether they say it like this or not. What must I do to be saved? Every single person that is looking for possession and position and accomplishment to fill the void in their heart, to find some sort of satisfaction and wholeness, here is what that person is doing in their pursuit of position, in their pursuit of promotion, in their pursuit of possession. They are asking themselves, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to feel whole? What must I do to feel this completeness, this emptiness to be erased from my life? Every single person who is going from relationship to relationship to relationship, trying to find approval and acceptance by people, listen, this is a pursuit of answering the question what must I do to be saved? And they're hoping that the next relationship and the next friendship and the next person and the next accomplishment and the next applause might finally satisfy their heart and they can say, finally I've arrived, only to discover nothing will. So they continue to cry out, what must I do to be saved? Your neighbors are crying, what must I do to be saved? You've got family members that are crying out, what must I do to be saved? This is the question the world is asking and you and I have the answer. I think he asked this question for two reasons. I think, one, he's aware, he's aware of his brokenness. I mean, this man's been asking this question. This is a hardened man. This is a, this is a very cold individual. These jailers had to deal with the worst of the worst. They, they, were, they were put in charge of the worst criminals because they were really good at what they did. Now, you don't get to where this man is in his life with compassion and mercy and tenderness. And this man is broken and he's empty, and, and yet he sees a joy in Paul and Silas. And, and, and there's something about this man named Jesus that calls them to stay even when they should have ran. And so he just asked them, I know you know the answer. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to have what you have? I should read the answer that they give. I love this, verse 31. And they said, and they said, they proclaimed, use words, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. Check out the transformation. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family, then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Listen, if we're going to be a people that turn the city upside down, to turn the world upside down for Jesus, listen, we need to understand this last truth. We must share the gospel with courage and clarity. We must share the gospel with courage and clarity. I want you to think about who they're talking to. This man comes, what must I do to be saved? This is a man who works for the Roman government. He is a in Roman authority. He has been the man that has, in addition to their beating, has caused discomfort in their life. This is a hardened man. And here's what Paul does. Paul immediately responds when this question is asked. And he says, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus to be saved. Now, why is that important? The Lord Jesus. This man worked for the Roman government. Paul would have known this, Silas would have known this, this man would have known this. There was only one person you called Lord in the Roman government, and that was Caesar. And to attribute lordship to anyone other than Caesar would be considered treason, and it was punishable by death. And yet Paul, without fear, courageously, looks this man of authority in the eye and says to him, you must believe that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. You must understand that there is a Lord and it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. He died, he resurrected and he is the only hope of being saved and you might fear the, the Roman Empire and not declare that Jesus is Lord but listen, Jesus is Lord and ultimately you're not gonna be saved if you preserve your Roman citizenship but if you want to truly be saved for eternity you must turn from Caesar as your Lord and trust Jesus as your Lord. You're talking about Courage. In boldness, they're in prison for preaching the gospel, and yet he's preaching the gospel knowing the greater cost that could be involved. And the clarity, look at the clarity. It says in verse 31, it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be safe. Pretty clear, amen? You and your household. So if your household wants to become a follower of Jesus, they too should believe in Jesus as Lord. And verse 32, it says this, And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. Here's what that means. Spoke the word of the Lord to him is synonymous with explained the gospel to him. He explained the gospel to him. I love this. The question was what? What must I do to be saved? What was the answer? He explained the gospel to him. Simply and clearly. Can I just confess to you my observations of the church? We make this thing way harder than what it should be. Like what? What, did, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say, "Ah, oh, I don't know enough theology." I need, to, I, need to go, I need to take some more classes and, and kind of go through some things and learn a little more about the ins and outs of the mystery of the Trinity, and maybe then I can answer that question. No, no, what does he do? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Let me explain what that means. Jesus died for your sins. You're a sinner. You agree with you're a sinner? Yes, okay, I'm a sinner. Yeah, remember how you put us in stocks you didn't need to? That was sin. That was wrong, and you shouldn't have done that, and that was really bad, but Jesus loves you, and no and sin separates you from God, but Jesus died so that that sin can be forgiven. And he resurrected from the grave, which means he's alive, and you need life. Yeah, I need life. You need life. Okay, Jesus died for your sins. He resurrected so you can have life. And if you'll believe in him, your sins can be forgiven, and you can have brand new life. Right? He simply explains the gospel to a man that desperately needed to hear it. And what happens? He believed and his life was transformed. You can see the transforming work. The jailers were not necessarily known for their hospitality, right? Like they, they weren't there to make your life as comfortable. Gonna make, I'm going to make you just feel like you're right at home here. Let me get some stocks out for you. What did you see immediately? Do, treats the wounds. Bandages them up. Hey, come to my house for dinner. We're going to serve your family. We're going to celebrate and throw a party Because Jesus has changed my life. Listen, there's power in the gospel to change even the hardest heart. And if we want to see the world turned upside down, we must share the gospel with courage and clarity. The world does not need us to give them 14 steps to a better life of becoming a more religious person or how to uh, fix their marriage necessarily. The world doesn't need us to walk through and, and psychoanalyze every event that's ever happened in their life before they can come to saving knowledge of Jesus. What do they need to know? You're a sinner, but God loves you, and Jesus died for you, and He resurrected, and you can be forgiven and given new life if you would just trust in Him. The world is not going to be transformed by our good ideas, good intentions, or religious concepts concepts. It's going to be transformed by the message of Jesus, and we need to make it simple, clear, and with courage, sit across the table with people we love and say, let me tell you the greatest news you could ever hear. That's what the world needs. And when we get to the place where we get that, there is no telling what Jesus can do through our life. There's some of you right now, you know you got to take them to coffee and you got to look at them and love them enough to say, you might reject me, our friendship might be over, you, you may turn your back, but I, I need to love you enough. I'm going to risk losing you as a friend because I love you. And i got to share something with you that's on a burden. Man, the Lord's been uh, eating me up and wearing me out, and you I cannot even sleep at night because you've been on my mind, and I've been praying for you, and I've been talking about you to the Lord about this conversation. So listen, I know you're going to think I'm crazy, but let me just share with you some things that Jesus has done in my life, and I just want to simply ask you what you think about that. Just simply, courageously, with clarity, share the gospel. A couple weeks ago, a guy came to my office who was broken. I mean, just absolutely broken. His family member, or close friend had died. And we were talking about whether or not this person was heaven and hell. It's really the question he was asking. And so I just simply asked the question, what do you think it takes for someone to be saved? And what do you think it takes? I mean, you keep asking this question, but where do you stand in regards to that question? Because in essence, what he was asking is, what must I do to be saved? So I just said, what do you think? And he began you know, being in the Bible Belt to talk about different possible scenarios. And I loved it because he was talking, and finally he just looked at me. He's like, I ain't got a clue. And I'm like, well, you came to the right place because I do. And I just simply shared the gospel. And you know that, that God loves you even though you're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. Yeah, I know I'm a sinner. God loves you and he sent Jesus to pay the price for your sin. He loves you and you were created for him and you can put your faith and trust in him. And I just kind of just walked him through in about eight minutes, walked him through the gospel. And I said, does that make sense? Big old tears. He goes, that makes sense. I've never really heard or understood that. I said, is that what you need? He goes, that's exactly what I need. And it is not an accident that I'm here and I know that I need to be saved right now. And he gave his life to Jesus. Just a simple explanation of the gospel. And this one will never be the same again. So, church family, when we understand this, when we come to the realization, okay, the the, the great commission is costly, I know there's a price to pay, but listen, I'm going to be more committed to the calling than I am my comfort. And, and now I understand, okay, if I want to really see the world turned upside down, I've got to also courageously and with clarity just simply share the good news of Jesus. Listen, when that happens and when God begins to uh, burn uh, in our hearts with this passion for the lost, that we are burdened for those apart from Jesus. We can run after the one and then another one and then another one and then another one and what God can do in our life is if we collectively together do this and then you individually uh, do this, we can see this city turned upside down for Jesus. Amen? But we've got to be willing to run after the next one. One of my favorite movies, war movies of all time, is a true story. It's a movie by the name of Hacksaw Ridge. Anybody heard of that movie, Hacksaw Ridge? It, it's the the story of, a, of an individual um, who understood... Um, that because of his belief system and a commitment he made to God that he could go to war but he couldn't fire a gun and it's a long story I'm not going to get into the the whole of it but his name is Desmond Doss and uh, he goes in the military World War II and you know what good are you in war if you don't shoot a gun and so uh, he went through the system and they finally honored his religious commitment and uh, this was a follower of Jesus and he goes into battle and they made him a, a rescue paramedic so basically he runs toward the wounded and pulls them out and but the story really centers on one particular battle called Hacksaw Ridge. They needed to take this ridge over in order to get some leverage on the Japanese who, was invading, who were invading the area. And uh, while he was up there, the Japanese were pushing the American soldiers back, and all of them bailed on it. Many of them died, and there were many wounded in the field. And, and Desmond Doss, rather than running to safety with the rest of his men, um, he felt compelled to stay in the battle even though he was unarmed and no other soldiers around to go back in and to get the men who had fallen and those who were alive to pull them to safety. And, and the story is him over about a 12-hour period running into the enemy lines, finding the wounded, uh, bandaging them, uh, dragging them back to the edge of the ridge, lowering them down wi- with a rope, and then going back for another. Uh, within about 12 hours, and, and they, the military, American military had no idea he was there. They thought he was dead. All of a sudden, all these wounded people start showing up to the infirmary, and they're like, where's he coming from? And they said, Doss is still up there. Seventy-five men were saved that night who would have had certain death. And my favorite moment of the movie was during that time of rescue. There was one prayer that he was praying over and over and over again. And it was, this was affirmed by him, Doss himself who told the story. That he would rescue a man, he would get to the edge, he would lower him down, and he would, he would lay his head down and he would say, Lord, give me one more. And he would run back into the fire, into the bombing, and he would find someone. He would drag them out. He would lower them down. He would catch his breath and say, Lord, just give me one more. And he would go back in. He would come back out, lower the man down. Lord, just give me one more. Just give me one more. Just give me one more. 75 men later, just give me one more. What would happen in this city if that's the urgency we got for the lost? If you and I, who say we believe in Jesus, who believe He's the only hope for the world, who believe that our lives have been transformed by the gospel, and who know we have men and women around us who need Him desperately, who, who are in the middle of the battle where the enemy is destroying their life for eternity, if we would just say, God, just give me one more, one more family member, one more co worker, one more person in my neighborhood, one more student in my classroom, God, just give me one more. I'm going to go after them. I'm going to run. Just give me one more. If we live with that type of urgency, this city would never. Never be the same again. And that is my prayer for us. That is my prayer for us. So here's what I want us to do I want us to bow our heads for a few moments. Bow your heads for a few moments, and I want us to think about our one. Some of you, the word one behind me is made up of the names that have already been turned in that some of you are praying for, that God would give you a one. So some of you, your one has already been turned in. Over you know, the next few minutes, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. I'm going to ask you to plead with God. God, just give me my one. And I'm going to invite you to leave your seat. Maybe it's kneeling down at your seat or coming and kneeling at this, this altar, but, but to, 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 to say to God, God, I, this is an urgent thing for me. I'm going to plead with you. That you would give me my one, break my heart for them, stir in me a desire to share. Give me the courage I need. Help me understand the cost involved, but I'm going to be more committed to the calling than my comfort. And give me what it takes just to share the simple gospel with them. And I'm challenging you. Let's plead with God for our one. Others of you, you have not turned in a card with the one that God is placing in your heart. And the seat backs in front of you or on the seat, if you're on the front row, there are cards there. And I would ask you to take one of those cards and write the name on the top and the bottom portion and then tear off the white portion and put that in the offering plate as it's passed at the end of the service. But before you place it in there, just plead with God, God, give me my one. So let's just take a few moments and let's just, just get after the Lord together and say, God, I know that this is costly. but I believe in my calling to go and make disciples and so God give me the courage to share with clarity the message of hope so for those of you who have turned in a card plead and ask Jesus to to prepare their heart, prepare your heart and to give you the one others of you you're asking for a name and pleading with God for them There's a third group of you in here. Some of you are the one. You don't know Jesus, and you're asking the question. You come in this place this morning, and maybe not in your own words, but in your heart, you're asking the question, what must I do to be saved? And I would say to you, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And our decision encouragers are going to be at the front, and if you are in that third group and you need to be saved, I would encourage you to leave your seat and come and speak to someone and say, I'm a one and I want to be saved today. I want to be forgiven of my sins and given a new life. Father, I love you, and I pray now in the name of Jesus that our hearts would break for the lost, that we would sense an urgency, that you would be more valuable than the things of this world to us. And there, there would be a desperation for us to see our one reached. And so, God, as we pray, break our hearts, give names to those who have not received names yet. And for those who are the one, God, I pray that you will move them from death to life today, even where they sit right now. We ask this in the name of Jesus.